Harrington. If anybody remembers Michael Harrington, the, the godfather of uh, uh, DSA, I mean that in a good way. Uh, and uh, his admonition to me as a young worker was to say, hey, if you're going to play any role, serious role in the union, you better familiarize yourself with Foster. He's the giant. And I did. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. First published in 1981, Working Class Giant, The Life of William Z. Foster, is the classic biography of the radical American labor organizer and communist politician. A new edition includes a foreword by today's guest, union activist and organizer Chris Townsend, who talks about how Foster's life and legacy continues to inspire a new generation of workers. I interviewed Townsend earlier this month on the Your Rights at Work radio show on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. And on Labor History in Two. The year was 1894. A group of four to 500 unemployed men marched down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the U.S. Capitol. In a buggy at the front of the march rode Jacob Coxey. We begin today's show with a trailer for Episode 2 of the terrific I Am Story podcast from AFSCME, which tells the gripping story of the 1968 Memphis sanitation workers' strike that drew the support of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. In 1968, 1,300 sanitation workers in Memphis went on strike to protest deadly, dangerous working conditions and demand dignity. The men were prepared to do and make whatever sacrifice to pursue this goal. The city really didn't give a damn about who they were, just as long as they performed the service for the citizens. They didn't treat them as human beings. Coming in April, the I Am podcast tells the story of the sanitation workers who dared to declare, I am a man. Now, these were people who had spent the better part of their adult life working for a city, taking orders from a racist supervisor. The fact of the matter is there's still this huge gap between black wealth and white wealth, and that gap has to be closed. That's what Dad was talking about. And that's what got him killed. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen... History is known to repeat itself. And today, 55 years later, Memphis sanitation workers are fighting against some very similar forces. We all believe that workers deserve a seat at the table and they've got to be treated with dignity and respect. And uh, we continue to fight for it. And it goes back to those famous four words that the Memphis sanitation workers had. I am a man. They don't see us as men and women. 
go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. William Zebulon Foster was a radical American labor organizer and communist politician whose career included serving as General Secretary of the Communist Party USA from 1945 to 1957. He was previously a member of the Socialist Party of America and the Industrial Workers of the World, leading the drive to organize the packing house industry during World War I and the steel strike of 1919. Working-class giant, The Life of William Z. Foster, was first published in 1981, and there's a brand new edition out now with a foreword by local union activist and organizer Chris Townsend. Townsend spent the last 40 years on the national staff of the United Electrical Workers Union and the Amalgamated Transit Union. He spoke with the Labor Radio Podcast Network earlier this week about how Foster's life and legacy continues to inspire a new generation of workers. William Zebulon Foster, uh, he died the year I was born. And uh, when I was a teenager, I came across him. Uh, the book that I got back into print initially, which was his collected works, American Trade Unionism. The current book, Working Class Giant by Arthur Zipser, it's a biography. It's not a heavy duty read, it's more about Foster as a human being in his life. He had an amazing trajectory from dirt poor youth to chairman of the Communist Party and everything in between, every organizing adventure you can imagine. He led the great uh, packing house, organizing the first industrial drive in a, you know, against a big trustified industry with a decent amount of success. And then the great steel strike, which failed, but just to get it off the ground was something. And so much of that work that he did is what laid the foundation for the Congress of Industrial Organizations. I don't think we would have had a CIO at all the way it turned out without all that tremendous work done by leftists and militants for you know several decades preceding it. So anyway, he had a collected works, American Trade Unionism, which, believe it or not, was put into my hands by Michael Harrington. If anybody remembers Michael Harrington, the godfather of... Uh, uh, DSA, or I mean that in a good way. Um, and uh, his admonition to me as a young worker was to say, hey, if you're going to play any role, serious role in the union, you better familiarize yourself with Foster. He's the giant. And I did. And uh, in any case, the uh, biography, which has just been republished, was uh, a close second. It was published last in 1980. Uh, along with American Trade Unionism, we started an organizing school. And American Trade Unionism, which is the, the book I was talking about, this is the collected works, the first book that I got reprinted. This was the unofficial text for the organizing school. And it still is five, almost six years later. Well, this is where the Starbucks movement originated, was in this school. And I'm not going to give Foster or me or Richard or anybody all the credit for this because, you know, we had no idea that this was going to catch on. And there were other successful organizing drives that came out of the school and still are. But the Foster, that was really when I saw that there was a younger 
mass audience, mass within our movement anyway, audience for a revival of just awareness of who Foster was and what work he had done, what roles he played. So I got that book reprinted by international publishers, uh, and uh, it led to several other book reprints. I got um, Roger Kieran, who did the work, uh, the Communist Party and the Auto Workers Union, which talks about the 25-year period before the founding of the United Auto Workers. People don't even know. There were several very feisty unions that existed prior to the UAW and helped comprise the UAW when it was put together finally. But we also found uh, volume 11, Philip Foner's Labor History, uh, History of the United History of the Labor Movement in the United States. It's uh, 10 volumes. And I managed to just persistence to find the 11th volume. And we got that reprinted. We got it shaped up. It was quite a to clean it up and make sure that we could get it worthy to put out. Uh, there's even notes for a 12th volume, but that's that's a steep climb. But we've also got a number of other books reprinted, and now uh, Foster's biography, the one that caught your eye, Chris, uh, Working Class Giant, that's now just out. And uh, I'm working on several books from Len DeCoe. If anyone remembers Len DeCoe, he did uh, Labor Radical and the living spirit of the Wobblies, both of those are being worked on. And uh, Wyndham Mortimer's Organize. If people have forgotten who Wyndham Mortimer was, he was probably the key force in getting the United Auto Workers off the ground. And uh, he wrote a book called Organize. Harold with Working to Live in Southwest Washington. Thanks, Chris. You know about these books, obviously, and the books are out of print, but what is the process that you're having to go through in order to find them and get them to these publishers so they can be republished? Are you having to knock on people's mm -hmm. doors to try to find copies or, or what, what's that like? Well, I mean, it is really an interesting uh, process. I am self-taught. I never set foot in college. There was no college in my Future. The reason why I ended up in a Malcolmated Transit Union was because I got out of high school and less than a week later I was working in a shop, a gigantic shop uh, in Florida, the city of Tampa, 3,600 people that was being organized by ATS. Complete fluke. I get out of high school in Pennsylvania, go down there where I had some family and a teenage radical, and here I find myself in this gigantic organizing event. So it was good. It put me to the test, and I was a producer, and I kind of stuck out as a, a young militant, you know, left-winger. My local was run by left-winger. So in any case, uh, that was where I began. Now, never having had any college at all, to me, college is just kind of a mafia out there that I'm not allowed to join. I'm a good student, despite the fact that I never went to college. I've amassed a labor library of about 3,000 volumes. It's the damnedest thing how this happened. I mean, I inherited them from people. I bought them when I saw them. I've always been a reader. I've probably got at least that many pamphlets. Everybody's probably aware that there used to be a pretty vibrant labor and left pamphlet uh, milieu out there, you know. So anyway, uh, over the years, people that knew me, they would die in giving things. Uh, the most recent thing that I uh, inherited was the International Association of Machinists threw away all these old books that nobody understood what they were. And it was all stuff that they had brought from D.C. and from the old AFL library. So it's just kind of a remarkable accident that I've collected all these things. 
I haven't read all of them. I read a decent number of them, the labor-specific ones. So I was aware of these books. So anyway, uh, when we started the school and we were literally bootlegging that out-of-print book, that's what forced me to have to figure this out. Now, in that case, international publishers had let it go out of print for more than 40 years, but they still owned it. So that was really a question of just convincing them that we could sell enough and get them to redo it. Now, some of you may be familiar with the book business. In the not too distant past, you had to go to a printer and you had to buy 10, 15, 20,000 copies to make it affordable and then hold that inventory and work that inventory off. What's rapidly taking that place is books on demand. So international was not obligated with American trade unionism to print five or 10,000 or 20,000 copies. It could do books on demand. And that's what enabled them to go forward rather quickly and do it. So if you buy a copy of that book or you have it, spit out whoever the printer is. There's a number of them around the country and it just comes out one at a time. If so it's a remarkable change in the printing trades that has allowed this. Now, the other books are just ones that I thought personally were worthy of being reprinted. And maybe folks know, but it's really a question that you have to have a copy of the book. It has to be scanned. It has to be cleaned up and proofread because the scanning is not foolproof. You have to use a new the forward, if you want, I did the new forward for the Parker Zipser book, but you can just use what's already there. You can use the existing cover or you can have a new one, which again, we did a new cover for the working class giant. But then once this is done, you press a button and it goes through the printer and you have a book that's been reprinted. Judy Ansel, Heartland, the Labor Forum. This is a big general question. What is it that Foster can teach people about organizing that... Today's organizers don't seem to know. Well, good question. Foster's basic concepts, which he developed over his career, you know, he had a career that ran the span from plain and simple trade unionist to sort of syndicalist, and then the IWW phase that he went through, and then he became kind of a, uh, a early Communist Party militant, uh, secretly so, and. Uh, then he devised both the trade union educational league and then the, kind of the necessary trade union unity league period, the dual union period. And then, of course, he helped play that key role in the CIO. And I will say, because of my work at UE, I knew, and uh, I guess also living in Florida, I had the very great fortune of knowing some of the most, or having made the acquaintance of some of the old legends, uh, Ben Gold who had been the president of the Fur Leather Union and driven into exile in Florida. I knew him a little bit when I lived in Florida. He spoke reverentially of Foster because Foster was the strategist and the tactician that would consult with these different union leaders and sometimes lean on them to do something. But in any case, the, the when I'd done my talks with these younger audiences, usually I did one a few weeks ago with 55 Teamsters who all work for UPS. And what I did was, that's just the for instance, but I go through and I just talk about some of Foster's concept, his concept of the militant minority, that the small uh, grain of sand in the oyster can build a, a pearl, that you don't need everybody. You're probably never going to get everybody, but you need to lead with that militant minority. 
his great emphasis on initiating mass campaigns of organization, mercilessly pushing on the labor bureaucracy to spend some of their enormous treasuries on organizing. This is, I think, to me, the, the way I, I'm never going to, none of these union leaders are ever going to talk to me again, but it's because they sit, I think you guys know, this is the most financially wealthy labor movement in the history of the universe, and it spends this much on new organizing. Shameful. And it, and and their demise will be the result from that. But, but also, Foster, uh, you know, was a great fan of political independence for the labor movement, independent from the Democrats, unconditional uh, independence um, or unconditional loyalty. He was also someone who, do, you know, in, in some of his writings, he explains that each trade union within the union leadership, it has a right, a center, and the left. Within every union, there is a left, a center, and the right in varying degrees and sizes. And for a worker and someone coming into a union or coming into union leadership, you must know this. Uh, for instance, Larry Hanley was the left wing of ATU. That's why he did the things that he did. Uh, the right wing has now seized control after his death, and it's you know it's 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 a way of thinking about the union that is absolutely required. Uh, his uh, complete broadside against corrupt business unions, corrupt not only in an overt sense, but also in a philosophical sense. Well, he was an inveterate foe of all manner of class collaboration schemes, kissy-kissy schemes with employers, uh, all of these things. I mean, he wrote a book called Misleaders of Labor, uh, which kind of got him established in 1926 uh, in that phase of his life. And it stands the test of time. A good grief. We all of us here, we've seen some of these folks rise and fall and what goes on, and it just debilitates the movement, diverts it from its path. I think everybody here is aware that the United Auto Workers just got a whole new leadership. Hallelujah, not a moment too soon. Uh, I'm rooting for them, but that never would have happened had it not been for just a saturation of corruption in that leadership. You know, directly tied to the legacy of Walter Ruther and his one-party control and his fanatic anti-communism. So, Chris, you're talking about some really great texts, and I think there is really a desire in this new generation of workers who are coming together and organizing. I guess my question is, where are they going to find these books? Funny this comes up today because uh, when I was talking about the inside organizing school, this was the school that Hanley and Bensinger and me started, you know, why we got the Foster book. Uh, I have always carted my library, or seemingly enough to give me a bad back to there to lay these things out for folks. Now, as I mentioned, the problem is folks would devour them, but then it was very limited access to them. Some of them have been bootlegged online by Google and some other folks. But it, uh, in any case, we had a list. And I just cleaned up the list, actually, just a week ago. So it's about 40 or 50 of some of the titles I've mentioned. There's others. All of them will probably be familiar to you guys. And it's haphazard, and that's the best that we can do. I appreciate your question, Harold, because it's not, it's not reaching uh, the kind of numbers. I mean, I have utilized some of the left groups DSA, uh, the Communist Party, Freedom Road, other kind of lefty groups that have made, you know, spread the word within their milieu. 
which is helpful. So have you ever seen the film The Killing Floor? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, actually, Foster is portrayed in that as being somebody who's working with the Chicago uh, AFL. Um, do you have any idea whether that portrayal is accurate of Foster? Yeah, the answer is yes, because one of the, uh, and I realize time just doesn't allow, but Foster was a big advocate of what he called boring from within. The militants and the activists should go into the existing unions, work with the existing unions uh, until they throw you out at least, and avoid at all costs trying to form these perfect, out of thin air, new unions that almost invariably, for a lot of reasons in the United States, go nowhere. So he did work with the Chicago Federation of Labor because the Packing House campaign was a federated campaign. In other words, there were like 22 or 23 different unions, in it, including the uh, the barrel makers, and what they used yeah. to call them, the Coopers. So they had to get these guys bought into this thing, and it worked. And it, it only came unglued when they, he turned it over to the AFL elements and he moved on to what became the strike, uh, the Great Steel Strike. Union activist and organizer Chris Townsend. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1894. A group of four to 500 unemployed men marched down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the U.S. Capitol. In a buggy at the front of the march rode Jacob Coxey. The march had been Coxey's idea. He was the owner of a sand quarry in Maslin, Ohio. Although he himself was a wealthy man, he had become incensed at the government's failure to address the nation's growing unemployment crisis. The Panic of 1893 had sent unemployment skyrocketing to 18%. Coxey called for a national march of unemployed workers to demand for a public works project. He declared it the Army of the Commonwealth of Christ. Across the nation, men took up the call. It's estimated that 20,000 workers set out for Washington, D.C., but not everyone made it that far. Workers from Portland, Oregon were arrested and sent home when they commandeered a train for the journey. It took the marchers from Ohio five weeks to arrive. But just as they approached the Capitol, a line of more than 1,000 police officers and military soldiers stood between them and their destination. As the soldiers drew closer, Coxey leapt from his buggy and jumped over a fence onto the Capitol grounds to begin his speech. But before he finished, he was arrested for walking on the grass. He served 20 days in jail. With his arrest, the movement disbanded. Although the government refused to listen to Coxey's message, it was covered widely by the press. The march brought attention to the plight of the unemployed. 50 years to the day when he was arrested, a 90-year-old Coxey returned to the Capitol. He had finally the opportunity to deliver the full speech he had prepared in his fight for working people. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. And on the eve of May Day 2023, Here's a bonus Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2012. That was the day that updated National Labor Relations Board rules regarding the formation of new unions went into effect. The rules cut down on the time between when workers announce that they want to hold an election to form a union and when that election can actually take place. 
The rule change was aimed at cutting down delay tactics used by employers to stop unionization. For example, one tactic used by employers was to engage in a long, drawn-out legal battle over which employees could belong to a new proposed bargaining unit. The NLRB's decision helped to curb some of the worst abuses of such tactics. Rich Trumka, president of the AFL-CIO, called the new rules, quote, a modest but important step to ensure that workers who want to vote to form a union at their workplace get a fair opportunity to do so. Businesses and their allies in Congress, on the other hand, tried everything they could to fight the decision. The U.S. House of Representatives put forward bills that would make union elections much more difficult and attempted to gut the NLRB's funding. The bills did not make it through the Senate, but later that year, the opponents to the changes were able to get the new rules thrown out, claiming the vote at the NLRB did not follow proper procedures. Finally, in December 2014, the rule changes went into effect. The ability to hold a vote on whether to form a union is a core right for workers who want to improve their working conditions, their wages, and workplace safety. Throughout U.S. labor history, business interests have done everything they can to thwart the will of their workers to join together. And delaying union elections is but one of their tactics. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, I sure hope you do. Please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.